should I go? Lord, I cannot find an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Man, that's powerful words to think about this morning. And my prayer is that, uh, that you can say his wounds have paid my ransom. That you do know this Christ and the free pardon of sin that he offers. So this morning, as we get ready, uh, hopefully our hearts are already in tune for worship. But as we always do, we're going to take a moment and read a portion of scripture and then spend just a few seconds in quiet meditative prayer before I lead us publicly uh, just to confess our sins, to ask God to soften our hearts, to receive the message that he has for us and that uh, we would respond accordingly as the spirit moves. So I'm going to read to you this morning from Proverbs chapter 16 verses 6 through 8 and then we'll take those few moments to pray privately. The Bible says this in Proverbs 16, 6. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Verse 8 says, Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Father, we pray this morning that you would search our hearts, that you would reveal to us any sin, uh, any complacency, any, any unforgiveness, Lord, or whatever else we might have brought in with us this week. Uh, Lord, that we would confess those sins, sins and that we would uh, seek your face today, Lord, that you would restore our, restore our joy, our fellowship, our assurance, Lord, and just to help us to worship you today, Lord, with gladness in our hearts. We thank you for your sweet spirit that we've already felt. We thank you for the guests and the regulars that are here today with us. And we just pray that you will now speak through your word, Lord. Speak through me as your servant. Uh, may you increase as I decrease. And we give you thanks today in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, uh, we started a brand new series that I had been praying about, thinking about for some time called The Struggle is Real. And, and my intention was to try to, over my years in ministry and even recently talking to folks, uh, listen to some of the areas in life that just really are difficult sometimes, that we really, all of us as believers or unbelievers, uh, battle. And so I compiled a list of some of those that I had heard, and this series was born. And last week we talked about forgiveness which can be a really big struggle for all of us. And so I encourage you, if you missed that, you can go back and listen to it online or on our Facebook page. But today, we're going to continue that series uh, with another topic. And, and my title today is The Struggle is Real Fear. And so I wore my shirt today, Faith Over Fear, uh, just to kind of reiterate that message. And so we are going to look in the Gospel of Matthew today. So I invite you to turn there with me, Matthew chapter 8. Uh, the words will be on the screen if you, perchance, didn't bring a Bible. There are Bibles in the pews in front of you as well if you want to follow us there. So as you're finding your place in Matthew 8, I want to share this little story with you uh, that, I, that I found. I thought it was kind of interesting. It goes like this. There was a passenger who hailed a taxi and got in, and uh, as they got ready and pulled out and started to, to go along down the road, the man in the back reached up and tapped the, uh, the taxi driver on the shoulder to ask a question. And it says the driver screamed, lost control of the cab, 
nearly hit a bus, drove up over the curb, and stopped just inches from a large plate glass window. For a few moments, everyone in the cab was silent. Then the shaking driver said, Are you okay? I'm so sorry, but you scared the daylights out of me. And the badly shaken passenger apologized to the driver and said, I didn't realize that just a tap on the shoulder would startle someone so badly. And the driver said, no, no, it's, I'm the one who should be sorry, he said. It's entirely my fault. Today is my first day driving a cab. I've been driving a hearse for 25 years. And so in that situation, I think we can all understand why fear was the response of that taxi driver. Because if you drive a hearse and you get a tap on the shoulder and there's nobody else in the car with you, I would probably drive up on the curb too. And so we're going to look today at a situation in the life of the disciples and Jesus, and we are going to tie that into this topic today. So I'm going to ask you this morning... One last time, if you're able, let's stretch our legs and stand up and honor the Word of God. We're just going to read a few verses in Matthew 8, uh, beginning at verse 23, and then we'll go once again to the Lord in prayer. The story that we're looking at today goes like this. And when he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But... Jesus was asleep, and they, the disciples, went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O you of little faith. Then he rose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. Father, we thank you today that you are the King of kings, that you are sovereign over everything, not just the winds and the seas, but over your people, over your church, over this nation. So, Lord, today we worship the God who is in control and help us to be constantly reminded of that when our fears and our other struggles rear their heads, Lord, to know that while things may seem chaotic, they're not out of control because you are on the throne, right where you've always been. So we thank you for that, Lord, and pray that you will speak to our hearts today to calm us of our fears and our anxieties so that we can walk in faith, trusting you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want to begin, as I often do, by trying to explain the terminology that I'm using so we're all on the same page and we're not coming at this from different angles. So I want to give you the dictionary's definition of fear. So this is a dictionary definition when we talk about the term fear. <clears throat> it says an emotion. So I want you to key in on that. An emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous or a threat. So that's what we're working with this morning. Now, the first thing we need to understand is that God created emotions, right? As his creatures, God instilled within us emotions. Therefore, emotions in and of themselves are not bad and they are not sinful. 
And so when we think about some scriptures in the Bible that shed a positive light on fear, for example, the first one that came to my mind was Proverbs 9.10. Proverbs 9.10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So there are different words in the scripture for fear, and depending on the context, the correct word would be used. Most of the time when we think about fear in a positive sense, it is a, a awe, like we sang in the song. It is an awe of God. It is, a, it is a reverence of Him. There is a fear because we recognize our position as created beings looking or worshiping the holy God of the universe. And so that fear rightly understands our position and His position. But emotions... Like everything else in a fallen world and fallen people as we all are, they can become sinful. They can become irrational. So as I tell you over and over again, and as the scriptures tell you, we have emotions and we have feelings. But those are not the gauge by which we judge truth. And we don't allow feelings and emotions to dictate how we respond. We live and breathe and act according to the infallible, inerrant Word of God. This is the source of truth. Even when our feelings are screaming the opposite, that doesn't change the truth. God's Word is true no matter what we feel or think in a difficult moment. So we need to understand that. We need to understand that. Now last week I talked about, at the beginning of the message... Uh, a phrase that a lot of Christians use, and I think in some ways wrongly use, and that was sin is sin. Like any sin is a sin, and, and we talked about the fact that on a surface level, sure, every sin is, is, is vile and worthy of condemnation. But we also recognize that, that there are certain sins in Scripture that receive greater punishments than others, and so we talked about all that. And I used that to kind of take us a roundabout way to get to the topic of forgiveness. I'm going to take us on a little bit of a journey again this morning to get to the topic of fear. But I think this is really, really important for us to understand this this morning, not just for fear, but really for the way that we live our lives as believers in every area. So I hope that, that, that you will take this to heart, that you'll take notes here if you do so, and uh, really try to get a grasp of that. One of the most important and essential doctrines that, that any Orthodox church should hold to is the Trinity that we worship one God in three persons, okay? The Trinity is an essential doctrine. There are some doctrines that churches don't agree on, and we can still fellowship with one another. But if a church rejects and denies the Trinity, they have departed, in my mind, from a biblical foundation that is necessary to understand the one true God. If you don't understand the, the triune nature of God, you're not worshiping the real God of Scripture. I know it's hard to grasp and wrap our minds around the depth of the Trinity, I don't think it's possible for us to fully understand the concept of the Trinity. But nonetheless, it is a biblical doctrine. And so I bring that up because we understand that the Scriptures declare that as human beings, we, all of us, were created in the image of God. That does not mean, as Mormons wrongly teach, that we are gods or we can become gods. There are limitations to being in the Imago Dei, the image of God. There are certain attributes and characteristics of God that we don't possess, obviously. And so 
When we are made in the image of God, it doesn't mean that we are equal with God, but it means that we possess characteristics that come from Him Himself. We are volitional creatures. We can make choices. We're intellectual creatures. We think we are creatures able to love one another. There are characteristics that God has given to human beings. I bring that up because just as God is triune in nature, I believe that we as human beings are what, what I would call tripartite or three parts, okay? Trichotomous is another term. Why do I bring that up this morning? First of all, let me back that up with some Bible. I don't want to just throw out big words and try to impress you with learning. And you say, well, that's great, but we're some scripture, Chris. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. I want you to see what Paul writes there to the church in Thessalonica. He says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In that verse, Paul distinguishes these three parts of, of the human psyche, the human body, and the human spirit, if you will. Now, there is differing opinions as to whether we are three parts or two because in some scriptures, the words soul and spirit are used interchangeably. And as I always tell you, context determines that. And so... While those words can be used interchangeably, they aren't always used interchangeably. And I believe that this verse specifically differentiates those three parts. Why do I bring all that up, especially on a topic about fear today? Because I want you to see where this struggle with fear and other things ultimately comes from and how you will have victory when you understand this better. So let's think about these three parts real quick. There's the spirit. When we think about the Spirit, we're talking about the eternal part of our being. The Spirit always will be. We understand that to be absent from the body when we die as a believer is to be present with the Lord. When we physically die, there is a separation that takes place. Our spirit no longer inhabits this earthly tent or tabernacle or body. And as a believer, it is our spirit that goes on to be with the Lord, awaiting the day when we receive a glorious resurrection body that that spirit, that born-again spirit, will inhabit forever. But understand that there is uh, a difference there. The, this fleshly body that we live in is going to perish. It's going to die. We understand that and we know that. So when we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and we think about our first parents in the garden and we think about God instructing them and giving them warnings we know this verse pretty well Genesis 2 17 God gives them the one prohibition in that garden he says but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely what die thanatos you will die you will perish now god in his goodness and grace and mercy didn't kill them on the spot he could have but he didn't he extended them grace and they lived another day and another day and they got to enjoy the blessings of having children and procreating and inhabiting the earth and living off of the creation 
But something did happen that day. A death did occur. They died spiritually. Because the Bible speaks of death being a separation. I just alluded to the fact that when we die physically, the spirit separates from the body. The Bible tells us that sin has separated us from a holy God. If you are here today without Christ, you are dead, the Bible says, in your trespasses and sins. You are physically alive. You are here in this room. Your heart is beating. You're breathing in oxygen. You're listening, hopefully, to my voice and not asleep. But you are alive physically, but you are dead spiritually without Christ. And we have to understand that. We have to understand that when we talk about when Jesus said you must be born again, all of us were born physically, but you need two births. You need a spiritual birth because your spirit is dead. You're separated from God because of your sins. And it is in that regeneration through the Holy Spirit, that, birth, that new birth, that born-again experience, that we become alive in our spirit to Christ. Ephesians 2.1 tells us we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. You were dead. Paul is speaking to believers. That was the past experience. And he goes on to tell them that by the grace of God they have been made new. And I already referenced 2 Corinthians 5.8, which tells us, we are of good courage and would rather be away or absent from the body and at home with the Lord. That is the hope of every believer because Jesus died and was buried and three days later rose from the grave. We have the promise and the hope that because we are connected to Christ by faith, because he lives, we too shall live. We have eternal life in Christ. So the spirit is eternal. It's our connection with God. It is our God consciousness, if you will. Then Paul mentioned the soul. The soul is what gives us our individuality. It's what makes us aware of ourself, if you will. Uh, the Greek word there is where we get our English word psyche from. And so that's our emotions, our affections, our will. All of those are wrapped up in the soul. Uh, we might think about Romans 12:2. A lot of you know this verse very well. It's one of your favorite verses and one of mine. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. When we come to Christ for salvation, it is our spirit that is born again, correct? That happens the moment we believe. That is a one-time act that is solely by the grace of God. It's not anything that we can do. It is something that He does for us when we repent and believe. Then, as Christians, we start off on this brand new journey called sanctification, where we are learning the Word of God, where we are growing in our relationship with Jesus and one another, where the Holy Spirit now lives within us, and He guides and illuminates and directs us in all things. And so we are learning to become and being conformed to the image of Christ. And that is taking place in our individual makeup, if you will. Notice that in Romans 12, 12, 2, he says that you are to be transformed, metamorpho. You think about the caterpillar. It goes in the cocoon. It comes out as something different. There's a transformation. That's the word that he's using there. How does that happen? By renewing our mind. When we got saved, we were made new creatures in a moment. But we had a lot of junk and still have a lot of junk. 
up in here and in this flesh that God is still working on. Our mind is being changed. Our affections are being changed. That's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. Certainly when you get saved, some things immediately fall away. I, I tell folks all the time, I couldn't string together one sentence without three or four cuss words in it. And when I got saved, God just cleaned up my mouth. That happened instantly. But there are other things that 20 years later, He is still working on me with. Okay? And that is the process of sanctification. It doesn't take place in the spirit. It takes place in the soul, in the person that we are ourselves. Because again, one of these days, we're going to go on to be with the Lord as believers. And the sanctification process will end and we'll be glorified. We will see him as he is. We will be known as he is known. Okay? And so that process does ultimately come to completion. What, but not until we arrive in glory. And then finally, Paul mentions the body. Perhaps what we're all most familiar with, because we are such physical creatures. We taste, we touch, we see, we hear. It's how we interact in the world. It's where we get our experiences from. And a lot of times we allow experiences to determine the way that we respond to things, the way that we react to things, the way that we live our lives. It's because through that physical body we have experienced stuff and we say I'll never do that again or boy that was fun I'll do that again that's why sin can be so enticing to the flesh because it makes it, the body it deceives the body into saying that felt good I enjoyed that experience I liked what I saw I liked what I heard and so I'm going to do it again and the flesh is all too willing to give in to that right and yet in our soul the Spirit is convicting us, He's conforming us, and we say, something's wrong there. And in our born-again spirit, our connection with God, we say, this, this is not who I am anymore. And that's where that battle takes place. That's where the struggle, that's one of the evidences that you are truly a child of God, is that there will be a war going on in your life. When I was lost, I would go out and sin because I wanted to. I looked for opportunities to do that. I enjoyed doing those things. And I'll tell you one thing. When I did those things, never ever once did I stop and say, I may have offended God by my actions. I didn't care. I didn't believe. I wasn't concerned about that. Now, lost people may feel guilt. They may feel guilty because they've been caught or because they did something to hurt someone else. But the connection is not there with God. They're spiritually dead. And that is the difference. And if you have that war going on inside of you, it's very painful and uncomfortable. But it's a good thing. It's a good thing that there's a struggle there because it shows that you are alive in Christ and you want to live for Him. Paul talked about that struggle in Romans 7. The great apostle Paul had the same struggle that you and I have. Think about that. We often think, man, I... They got people in the Bible, they're just, you know, they're the cream of the crop. No, they're just ordinary people that God did extraordinary things through. But they're no different than us. They're not super Christians. I'm not a super Christian. We're all saved by grace through faith, guys. We're all here today only by the grace of God. The only thing I can boast about this morning is Jesus. The only way that I would ever be found acceptable in heaven and the only way you'll ever be found acceptable in heaven is through the blood of Christ. And so 
Paul talks about that struggle in his life. Listen to this. Romans 7, <clears throat> verses 20. I'll just pull out two verses here. Romans 7, 22 and 23. Paul says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. The Spirit of God is in me, and I delight in God's law. His word is true. I love his law. I want to please God. That should be the response of a true child of God. We want to please God. We want to honor God. We want to glorify God. We want to obey God. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? Paul said, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He's describing that battle that I've just tried to explain to you as human beings that are three parts, if you will, in that war that's waging on inside of us. Now, I want you to understand that I am not saying that everything physical is bad and everything spiritual is good. In the first century, there was a group of folks, of, of folks called Gnostics, and that was their belief. A lot of the letters in the New Testament, 1 John is one example, were written to combat the heresy of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism basically said that the flesh was bad and the spirit was good, and because the spirit will live forever and the flesh is going to perish, it doesn't matter what you do with the flesh as long as you're spiritual. You can go out and get drunk, you can go out and partake in all sorts of sexual perversion. It doesn't matter because ultimately the spirit will be saved and the flesh is worthless, so who cares what we do with it? That's not at all what I'm saying this morning or what the scriptures say, right? We are being sanctified, and because of that, because of the new person that we are, it does matter how we live our lives. We have a witness to uphold, we have a God to proclaim, and you can tear down your testimony faster than anything by living a hypocritical, ungodly life before folks. We see it all the time. We hear it all the time. What's the number one reason, at least, or maybe an excuse, why a lot of people don't come to church? You're a bunch of hypocrites. And to some degree, we all can be hypocritical, right? And so when we blow it, which we all will, when we do act hypocritical, don't justify it, don't excuse it, repent. Say, you're, you know what, you're right. I didn't live up to the standard that I claim to believe. Forgive me. That takes a little bit of humility, and that's something we all need. Right? Okay. So I hope you understand where I'm coming at from this, that, that there are different things going on in our lives as human beings, and we need to be able to distinguish where this is happening. What part of our life is this happening? Is this the new spirit that I am in Christ? Is this my individuality as a person? Is this my flesh? Where, where is this war taking place? So here's one thing and why I bring this all up. I hear people say this all the time. If I have fear, it must mean that I don't have faith. And I think people have wrongly come to the conclusion that fear and faith cannot coexist. That only one of those two can be at work in my life at one time. And I don't for a minute believe that that's what the scriptures teach. But I do believe that only one of those can drive. Okay? I believe that both can exist in the life of the believer at any given time. But one of those two will control your life. Fear of faith will control your life. It will dictate your decisions or lack thereof. It will dictate how you operate in this world. And that is where we need to distinguish this. Because 
Remember our dictionary definition that I read to you about fear. It was an emotion. Faith is not an emotion. Okay? So we're going to distinguish those two. Faith is not an emotion. Hold your spot in Matthew's Gospel and flip over to the book of Acts chapter 8 real quick or the guys will hopefully have this on the screen. I want you to see this story in the book of Acts. To just catch you up on the context of the chapter, we're talking about a guy named Philip. Philip was an evangelist and he goes out in, in a region uh, in Gaza and he's going to run into this Ethiopian eunuch. And this eunuch is in a chariot, and this eunuch is reading the Word of God. Okay? So, Acts chapter 8, I'm going to read to you beginning at verse 32 and go down a few verses, and you'll see this story. So, Philip runs up to him and asks him the question, Do you understand what you're reading? And he says, How can I unless someone guides me? Verse 32 says, now the passage of the scripture that the eunuch was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch is reading from the book of Isaiah. Who is Isaiah describing in that prophetic verse? Jesus. The eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Verse 37. Now, I know some of you are saying, what, what's going on with my Bible here? Because it says verse 36 and verse 38. I'm not going to get into a big, long discourse about textual criticism. You've probably heard me teach on it enough. So I'm going to read to you verse 37 from the King James Version. If you have an ESV or probably an NASB, you'll notice that that verse is italicized. It's probably down at the bottom because early manuscripts don't contain it. And again, that's a topic for a whole other day. But verse 37 of the King James Version says, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest be baptized. And the eunuch answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You see, Philip challenged him and said, If you believe with all your heart, doesn't the Bible say that when we are saved, God puts within us a new heart? He's telling Philip that this goes beyond just mental understanding. This goes beyond just knowing some facts about Jesus. This is a transformation of who you are. This is a change from dead in sin to alive in Christ. And so faith goes well beyond just an emotional experience. There are many people in church that get worked up in the moment and come and make a decision for Jesus that was not genuine. Because it was driven by emotion. And faith is not an emotion. That's why a lot of churches will get you all sorts of worked up in the service. They'll do everything possible to get you hyped up. And I'm all for people getting hyped up if it's the Spirit doing the hyping. 
But I don't want to stand up here for a minute and get you worked up into a frenzy emotionally and not have anything happen to you spiritually. And that's the problem with a lot of churches today. Everything is built on appealing to the emotion in the moment, so much so that, that you'll hear this all the time. The phrase in many churches is, we want you to have a marvelous worship experience. You hear it all the time. I want you to have a marvelous experience too, and you will if you meet the resurrected Christ. You'll have an experience that nothing in the world can offer you. And that experience won't end 15 minutes after you leave church and go, go to McDonald's. It'll be with you for the rest of your life. And that's the difference. We're not just talking about emotions. We're talking about a transformation. That's what happened to the Ethiopian eunuch. And that's what has happened to many of you. And that's what can happen to you today. But it has to go beyond emotions. So now let's go all the way back. I told you we'd circle around full circle to our text in Matthew. And we'll move through this quickly. Okay? In verse 25, we see that his disciples are in the boat with Jesus. And it says that a great storm rose up. And the disciples come to Jesus and they say to him, Lord, save us, we're perishing. Now these guys aren't just scared, wimpy men. These are fishermen. They've been out on the Sea of Galilee a time or two. Okay, it was what they did for a living. They'd been in some storms. It wasn't just that every little cloud and every little rumble of thunder got them all worked up. These fishermen who had experienced this stuff, the Bible says it was a great storm, a storm like they'd never been in. Something was going on that was different this time, and they were scared. They were genuinely afraid that they were going to die. Okay? You have to see that in the text. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And then what does Jesus say to them? Why? He starts with a question in verse 26. He says, why are you afraid? I want us to stop right there for just a minute, and I want us to be honest with just ourselves and the Lord. I want you to ask that question to yourself. What am I afraid of? What fear right now today in my life is consuming and controlling my thoughts and maybe my actions and the way that I live? You don't have to tell anybody, but you know what it is and God knows what it is. What fear is controlling you? Now imagine if you were in the boat, just like they were, and Jesus asked that question. Jesus asked that question. Not me asking you. Not somebody you know. Jesus is in the boat. And he says, why are you afraid? He knew why they were afraid. But he wanted them to go a little deeper. And I want you to go a little bit deeper with me as we think about that. He says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Jesus was in the boat, guys. Shouldn't that change things? As a believer... The Spirit of God lives within you. Shouldn't that change things? Why are we afraid? Why were they afraid when Jesus was in the boat? Why do we fear when Christ is with us? Because the emotion and the circumstance in that moment seems bigger than God. It seems bigger than God because we're feeling it, we're experiencing it. 
we're looking at it and we're trying to figure out how it makes sense and how do we get out of this situation and we don't have the answers and you're not gonna have the answers he does God does and you're going to have to look to him because we talked about at the very beginning of this message that God is sovereign and that is one of the sweetest doctrines that you can ever learn and understand that God is in control I understand that looking at things right now in our world in our country will cause you to say this thing is spiraling out of control it will not go one inch farther than God allows it not one thing will happen that doesn't pass through the hand of a sovereign God nothing catches him off guard nothing surprises him nothing is more powerful than him and when you really in your soul get that you can rest you can rest I did not say that you'll never fear I did not say that you'll ever come to crossroads where faith and fear seem to be at odds with each other but you will be able to let faith take hold and have the upper hand in your life when you can grasp this reality in Mark 5.36, we see Jesus saying the same thing. He overheard what they were saying. This is in the context of, of Jairus and his daughter that, it, that had gotten sick and died. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only leave. Both of those things are going on. Fear and faith. But one's got to be above the other. What's it going to be? Like I said, faith and fear are going to exist in our lives together. But only one can control us. One is an emotion, a very strong and powerful emotion. But one is rooted in absolute truth, unchanging truth. A truth that you can rest on, even when things don't seem to make sense. Because we're either walking by sight or we're walking by faith. And in both of those circumstances, a lot of times, we don't know where we're going. You can be walking by sight and say, I really have no, I know where I want to go, but I really don't know how I'm going to get there, and I don't know where I'm going right now. And you can walk in faith and say the same thing. I know where God wants me to go, or at least I think I do, but I have no clue how we're getting there, God. Like, this is not the detour that I want to take. This is not the path I would have went, and that's because you're not God. He is. But we are going to walk by one of those two mindsets, by sight or by faith. So when, when life hits us, when the struggle of fear comes in, how do we process those things? Do we try to reason it out? If you're a thinking person, an analytical person, a type A person like me, you try to overanalyze everything. You try to overthink everything. And so every time something happens, you're trying to diagnose it and fix it and figure it out you're using your intellect you're using your self-conscience if you will maybe a lot of times things happen in your life and you say well I've I've been through that before so I'm gonna let my experiences determine what I do and, and experiences can be true and trustworthy to some degree but they're not ultimate and, and they are changing you can have a great experience one time and a horrible experience the next or vice versa or we can live by the spirit within us our new creature the, the new creature that we become and walk in faith 
What about grief? You know, a lot of times, fear and grief go hand in hand. We lose a loved one, we're grieving, and then all the fear sets in. My goodness, how am I going to survive without this person? How am I going to make it? And all those fears rise up. Again, nobody is going to say, well, just don't grieve. And don't worry about it. Right? Like it's a switch you can just turn off. We grieve. The Bible says we grieve. But it says we grieve as those, we don't grieve as those that have no hope. There's a different way that we grieve. Because faith is greater than our grief. Faith is greater than our fears. And we have to trust that that loved one in New Christ is as alive today as they ever were, more so than they were here. And we will see them again. What about what we're doing here today? We're worshiping, or at least I hope we are. We're worshiping God. How do we do that? What did Jesus tell the Samaritan woman at the well? How are we to worship? He said in John 4, 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in the flesh and get all worked up and excited and run the aisles and do cartwheels and have skinny jeans on, smoke machines and lights. Is that what that verse says? No. I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but you shouldn't have to create a worship experience. You should hear the word of God, understand whose presence you're standing in and worship like Isaiah did. He says, we worship in spirit and truth. The new man has been born again and we connect with God through that new birth and we worship Him with that connection and in truth, which is Christ and His Word. That's true worship. That's what we strive to do here every week and hopefully every day in your life outside of here. So let me close with, real quick with these few verses because I know you've probably been thinking about fear and a couple of verses have popped in your mind. Probably one of them, 2 Timothy 1.7. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Well, what does that mean, Pastor? What does that mean that God didn't give us a spirit of fear? Exactly what it says, that He is greater than anything that can cause us to fear. Our spirit, our connection with God, helps us to understand that He is sovereign, and fear may exist, but it will not control the sanctified child of God because He has given us power through the Spirit and through His Word, to have victory over that fear. He's given us His love shed abroad in our hearts so that we can know that He loves us, that He won't leave us, that He cares for us, and self-control. Our emotions may get the best of us momentarily, but they shouldn't constantly have us pulled all over the place. We should be self-controlled enough because we are led by the Spirit of God and the new life we have in Christ. That's what the verse is teaching us. It's not of God when fear overtakes us and cripples us. You need to remember that. The fear may be there in our flesh, but greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Let me give you one more verse and we'll close. 1 John 4.18 is another verse that people often quote. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So a lot of people read that verse and say, man, I have fears. I get afraid sometimes. I must not be a good Christian. I must not be saved. That's not what the verse is saying. And, and I, I harp on this all the time. Guys, we have to read verses in context, not just pull out a verse and make it say what we want it to say. He said, there is no fear in love, 
But perfect love casts out fear. What kind of fear is he talking about? Why does it cast out fear? For fear has to do with punishment, judgment. The believer no longer has to fear judgment because Christ took the judgment for us so that we can say along with the Apostle Paul, there is there, therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. He took the wrath of God in our place. We never, ever, 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 ever have to fear going to hell again. That ought to cause you to shout, even if you are a Baptist. He has delivered us from our sins and the condemnation which would have sent us to hell. If he never does anything else for us, we could never spend enough time thanking him for that one thing. Fear is broken because there is no judgment. And he goes on. Let's, let's step back on that verse. Let's go from verse 18 back to 17. He says there, By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because he is also, as he is, so also are we in this world. In verse 18 he says, There's no fear because love has driven it out. In verse 17 before that he says, This love is perfecting us because we can have confidence in the day of judgment. When we stand before the Lord we can have confidence that we are his children, that we're not going to see here depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you, but he is going to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant, enter into the joy prepared for you. That's the difference. That is the difference. And one more verse back from that one, he says, so we have come to know and believe the love God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It all points back to the fact that God is greater than any fear, any emotion that we have. His love is true. It's genuine. It's unchangeable because it is rooted in Him, not us and our performance. So often we think, man, if I don't just toe the line and if I don't live a certain way and act a certain way, God's not going to love me. He's going to be displeased with me. He's going to get rid of me. Listen, we are called to be obedient. We are called to be holy. This is not an excuse to just go out and live how you want to because no true Christian ought to want to live that way. But the reality is that the Bible tells us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came and would have came for you regardless of who you were and what you've done. He loves you that much that he died for your sins before you ever committed them. Think about that for a minute. Try to wrap your mind around that. And understand this. God's love is settled because God is love. It doesn't fluctuate. It doesn't change. That's why legalism is so exhausting. Because you're constantly trying to do enough to make God pleased with you, to make God love you. And then every time you don't do enough, wherever your imaginary line is, and you fall short of that, then you fall into guilt and shame and fear because you think, man, I don't know if God loves me anymore. I don't know if He accepts me anymore. What if He didn't forgive me this time? And you're in this hamster wheel and you're going nowhere. And when you're set free from that fear to understand that it is by grace through faith alone that we are saved and God loves us because of who He is and who Christ is, man, that's liberating. And fear won't control you any longer you will be free to really live for Christ. You'll walk by faith. I'm going to invite the praise team to come. And I want us to think about this as we come to the time of invitation. How do we apply this? How do we respond to this message this morning? Because some of you in this room this morning, 
you have a relationship with God. And God is dealing with you on stuff, and you want to obey. I believe that there's people in this church that God is called to do certain things, and the only thing keeping you from that is your fear. You're afraid to fail. You're afraid of what people might say. You're afraid to get hurt. You're afraid to commit. I don't know what it is, but your fear is overriding the faith that you need to step out in. And we've all been there. The number one reason I talk to people all the time, I think every Christian understands they're supposed to share their faith. They're supposed to go out and evangelize. The Great Commission says go and make disciples, and we know that. What's the number one reason why people don't share their faith? Fear. I'm afraid. I'm afraid to, I don't know what to say. I'm afraid somebody's going to slam the door in my face. I'm afraid they're going to think I'm a fool, and on and on and on. And fear keeps you from ever telling people around you about Jesus while they die lost and go to hell. That's the reality of this thing. We're afraid to pray. I talk to a lot of people that say, I don't like to pray in public. I'm scared to death of that. And that's a, a phobia, a fear that a lot of people have. But you can, you know how you overcome that? You do it. You do it. You just, I, you just do it. There's a lot of people that get saved and they say, man, I, I'm, I would come forward and make my profession of faith public, but then they want me to get baptized and I'm scared to, I'm scared to do that. I'm scared to have the water on me. I've had people tell me that. Fear holds us back in so many ways. There's a story. I'll, I'll close with this, I promise. Uncle Oscar, it says, was apprehensive about his first plane ride. His friends, eager to hear how it went, asked if he enjoyed the flight. Well, said Uncle Oscar, it wasn't as bad as I thought it might be. But I'll tell you this, I never did put all my weight down. He sat on that seat like that the whole time. Probably like I would. But here's the thing. Some of you are not putting all your weight down on Christ. There are certain fears that are keeping you from trusting Him completely. Or maybe trusting Him at all. This morning it's time to put your weight down on Jesus. He's a firm foundation, guys. You won't fall. He'll catch you. He'll keep you. He'll use you. But you've got to step out and let... Faith be bigger than your fears. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word. I pray today, Lord, that all of us would benefit from this message, Lord, and see that uh, it doesn't make us lesser Christians when we struggle with fear. But it does give us hope that we can overcome these things and that through faith and through the Spirit of God and the Word of God, we can live a victorious life over fear, that emotion that is powerful, but ultimately not sovereign as you are. So, Lord, in this time of invitation, I pray that you will deal with hearts, that decisions will be made to step out in faith, whether that's to receive you as Savior, to commit to baptism, to serve in this church, whatever it might be, Lord. Have your way in this time, and we'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand and as we sing, to 